freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Everybody, welcome to episode number 227 of Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. I am one of your hosts, Cheryl Todd. And I'm the other guy, Dan Todd. Our guest today is... Oh. I forgot the theme. Oh, okay. The, theme, the gun code. The gun code. And our guest today is <laughs> Ashley Levinsky. Yes, and we are laughing because I may or may not have edited out a whole lot of silliness. So just hang with us. We probably have the giggles now. Ashley is one of the nation's foremost authorities on firearms history. Recently, she served as both curator of the Cody Firearms Museum, the CFM, and project director for the museum's multi million dollar renovation that reopened in July of 2019. Thank goodness that was before COVID. Holy moly. Yeah. Due to her and her team's efforts, the museum has received positive reviews from both gun and mainstream media, no small feat, and is seen as the premier gun museum in the world that fosters dialogue for a range of diverse audiences. Additionally, if that's not enough, Levinsky is a highly sought-after museum consultant, guest speaker, writer, expert witness and in the U.S. and Canada, and a television host and producer. I'm exhausted just reading the things that you spend your life doing. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Ashley. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting way to go about doing it, but I kind of like it because you get some video in it. Yeah, this is, um, you know, for years we were Gun Freedom Radio, strictly radio. And so this whole camera thing is, uh, you know, I, I have to do my hair and makeup every single show. So, I mean, it's just much more labor intensive, but I like it. <laughs> I like it too. I'm much more of a visual person. So I love being able to watch videos like this. Absolutely. So you are a historian who is always leaning into the future and doing something new. So you're kind of on both ends of the, the spectrum. You recently left your previous position at Cody Firearms Museum, but you're still very much connected to the museum and have accepted the position of curator emerita and senior firearms scholar at the CFM, uh, an honor typically reserved for the end of <laughs> one's career. I don't think you're at the end of your career. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. And first of all, tell us about this position. What does it entail? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of funny because if you're familiar with the academic kind of structure, the university structure, the museum structure, emeritus or emerita, if you're a lady, um, is something that you usually get, you know, at the end of your career, kind of like a thank you to the work that you've done. And um, probably about... Two years ago, when we got a new CEO at the center, um, we were in the thick of the renovation, and I started talking to the CEO about the fact that I wanted to have some kind of transition plan. Um, I love my job at the CFM. I wasn't looking to leave the CFM completely, but my consulting business was growing to a point where, you know, I was having to turn away a lot of stuff. And the fact that my, you know, the little fact that my husband and stepdaughter and dog live in Arizona, you know, also may have played a factor. Um, so <laughs> we started not. talking about like what's next, you know, for the CFM. And he asked a very kind of poignant question for me. And, and it was always like, what's the next big thing for the CFM? And um, I have lots of ideas uh, for where I'd love to see the museum go next. Um, but I didn't have, you know, that groundbreaking CFM renovation type of idea anymore. And so I even kind of thought, I'm like, well, you know, like the, you, I was brought in to rebuild the museum to kind of fix 
you know, a lot of the collections issues to, you know, fix some relationships that, you know, maybe had gone stale over the decades that we had been open. And I came and I did all that. And I was like, you know what, this really is time for somebody else to bring fresh eyes to the project and kind of continue to move the museum forward. Um, but neither of a, neither the institution nor myself really wanted to completely sever ties. And so we went back and forth about, you know, is there a way for the curator to be 100% remote? Um, and the answer is no. <laughs> and so then, you know, we talked about, you know, Emerita and um, the late Herbert House was our last um, curator emeritus. And he was a very, very good friend of mine. And so they said, well, would you be interested in that position? And I was like, of course, um, because it basically means that I get to do all the fun stuff with no stress. Yay! Um, <laughs> so it That's is actually sweet. really interesting because um, for me, I get to focus on a lot of the scholarship that I haven't been able to do, you know, for years because we've been building a museum. Um, I basically took a step back from the day to day and get to, you know, work with Danny, who's now our curator. So you'll have to have him on. And yes. um, basically, you know, help create his vision, help uh, make his vision happen. And then I'm going to be chairing our annual symposium. So I'll still be um, running that. I'm managing our social media pages um, because one thing you learn when you become curator is that there is no time to do that. <laughs> uh, so I'm basically taking some of those types of things off of Danny's plate so that he can manage the grants and budgets and day-to-day -day and uh, major exhibitions. And so uh, I'm here to help wherever they see fit. Okay. Ashley, you're the only person I know that can be seven places at one time. <laughs> well, isn't it, isn't it ironic that, like, I moved to Arizona, and we're doing this call, and I'm in Cody again, and you guys are in Arizona? <laughs> yes, yeah. That, well, thank goodness we live uh, in the digital age. But um, when you talked about social media, I don't know if people realize what an exciting moment this is that the, the shark suit is right behind you. The one. <laughs> that has ah. featured so prominently in multiple uh, Cody Firearm Museum uh, Instagram posts, so. Oh yeah, my office is, a, my new office is, a, well, my new old office is a train wreck because this is actually full circle. So this is a back office right by the vault. Um, and it's actually the vault or the, the office I started in. And um, we haven't had anyone in it for years. And when they were asking about office space, I was like, can I? Can I go back to my old office? So it's kind of a train wreck in here. You can't see what's going on over there. Uh, but there's like boxes full of all of the labels from the old museum just stacked up. It's um, a perfect visual for exactly how busy you are <laughs> and how busy the museum is. So I think it's, I think it's perfect. Plus, shark suit alert. Yeah. Um, so you have also begun the important work of defending our constitutional protections with a group called the Firearms Policy Coalition. Talk to us yeah. about that. Yeah, so this is actually really exciting for me because one of the things I struggled with when I was in graduate school uh, was the fact that like when you're trained to be a historian, you're basically, it's, it's almost an impossible task. I mean, you're, you're only, you're trying to assemble a bunch of historical information that anyone, you know, could have different perspectives on, and you're never going to have all the information. So you're basically crafting a story based on, you know, your opinion and the evidence that's presented. Um, and that's, a, that's one thing people don't realize about history. It's not just the facts, please. It's, you know, a lot of opinion and, and perspective on the information that's presented. And I would always get really frustrated in classes because I'd be like, but what's the point? You know, <laughs> like, why? why are we doing this? Who's reading this? You know, and, you know, and, and in the grand scheme of thing, things, historians do play a very important role because we write the histories that then get, you know, dissected down for teachers and public educators that then get presented to the public through museums, through classrooms. And so, you know, I always say when sometimes people in our world scoff at academics, you know, they do have a really big part of, you know, writing the history that then gets disseminated to the public. But, you know, it was always kind of like, what's the point? Who's reading this? And, you know, the one cool thing about working in the museum is that you get to educate the public. Um, but a couple of years ago, or maybe no, it was last year, you know, I was approached 
by uh, the law, one of the law firms working on the Miller v. Becerra case, um, which is the uh, injunction against the California assault weapons ban. And they asked if I would be willing to write an expert witness testimony on um, the specific features highlighted within the ban and the historical lineages of them. Um, and so I did, and, and I'd been doing expert witness testimony for several years at that point. Um, and you know, the one thing about being an expert witness is somebody asks you to do a job and you do the research and you present it kind of, you know, whatever the research shows. And um, so, you know, I worked on that and um, Fires Policy Coalition is one of the companies that's involved in that lawsuit. And so we got to talking about um, the work they're doing, their, their kind of Second Amendment scholarship that they're doing, and I kind of started talking about my frustration with the lack of scholarship on firearms and material culture, and they were like, well, would you be willing to come on board as one of our scholars? And basically, you know, my job is a couple fold. Um, one of them is I get to pick the research topics that I want and do real academic scholarship um, on those topics and publish um, in academic presses um, and then also on their website and then through their channels. Uh, but then I'm also there kind of as a guide, a consultant. So if they're working on a policy brief, um, you know, or anything like that and they want my historical opinion, they can send it to me and I can review it. Um, all the expert witness testimony is done separately um, outside of FBC, um, even if they're involved in it or not. But so I basically get to choose research topics and dive deep into them. And I think one of the first ones I'm gonna do now that I'm switched over in my positions with the museum is I really, really want to explore the term assault weapon and yes. where that truly originated because, um, you know, I kind of have like a, I, you know, I've heard some things about it actually originating out of the gun world. Um, and I've discovered some terminology around that um, in the military contracts, but I really want to understand this term. It's this like, you know, today it's this term that, you know, is a legislative catch-all, you know, that it basically is applied state, federally, wherever into lawsuits, but it always means something a little bit different. And I want to know where it actually started um, so that we can kind of get a better perspective on how it's evolved into where it is today. So I think that'll probably be one of my first big projects is dissecting that term assault weapon and figuring it out. Um, we know a lot of the legal history behind it, but I kind of want to see if there's any material culture history that predates, um, you know, that predates the, the legislation. Absolutely. I've seen on, um, you know, social media threads every once in a while, you try to lend your historical uh, voice to that, that whole, you know, when somebody says, well, it's a completely made up term, it's just completely political. And you're like, well, and it's like, it is this kind of a nuanced thing. And, and so I think that for you to spend the time to really take that deep dive, language is so important. Uh, we use language to, to change hearts and minds on either side of any issue. So I am very excited that you're going to be uh, helping all of us to understand that term yeah. better. It's cool. I don't like, it's a way I don't like to the apply. Word. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry, go I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, it's 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 a way to take my historical background and actually apply it to a real world thing, and that's really the coolest part of working with FBC and you know doing expert witness testimonies outside of the organization. It's just you actually feel like you're doing something rather yeah. than just pontificating. Yeah. Right. I don't like that word assault or weapon. Yeah. I, mean, I think neither <laughs> one of them, we don't have assault weapons at our store. We don't have weapons at our store. Mm -hmm. We have, we have firearms and you know, to me, weapon sounds like a uh, negative in, you know, that you would use against somebody, not necessary to defend yourself. I know what the dictionary says, but to me, that word is offensive. Sounds like you're the, the aggressor. aggressor we say we have tools of, self-defense, we have tools of hunting, we have tools of sporting, but we just particularly don't care for the, the word weapon in the the retail setting that, that we have at AZ Firearms. And then, you know, the whole word assault, well, that's a behavior, right. not, a, not a thing. So for you to really dig in, we're going to be we're going to be excited for right. what you so, share with us. Yeah, actually, yeah. so the museum has several uh, firearms does any has any of your firearms assaulted anybody while they <laughs> walk through the museum? Uh, well, I mean, they're kind of lazy, you know. They yeah. just hang out on mounts and they <laughs> chill behind yeah. the glass. Um, so, not to my knowledge, but you know, it's one of those kind of interesting 
things that goes on. And, and as you guys know, since you've been out to the museum, uh, you know, we do, right when you walk into the front of the museum, have terminology. And, you know, we, per, you know, personally with the museum, we don't call any of our firearms weapons because when an artifact comes into a museum, it kind of is a very difficult subject or topic for a lot of people to kind of wrap their heads around, but it ceases to be that thing. You know, it's an artifact, it's meant for preservation. And so, you know, it is not, you know, could one of our firearms be used in a defensive situation or actually go out and be used at the range? Well, of course, um, but you know, they're not, their purpose is not for that use anymore. And so we're very um, careful about that. And then we also are careful about the term weapon. You know, as you said, you know, we use the term weapon when it is being used as such. Um, you know, so there's, we try to kind of talk about that as well. You know, and what I do all the time with like the term assault rifle, which is the one where everyone gets even more mad because, you know, it is a definable term, but, um, you know, a lot of people don't like it because of the assault, you know, part that comes before. And so my answer to people is, you know, okay, you don't have to like the term, but you can't say that it's not a historical term. Uh, so you don't have to like it, you don't have to agree with it, and that's fine, but I can define it, you know, better than I can define assault weapon right now, <laughs> other than as a legislative catch-all term, you know, but I can define it pretty clearly, and so, you know, we can, you know, there's a chance that the term can be altered, you know, at some point to be more precise, um, but, you know, you don't have to like it, and, you know, I don't necessarily like the term, but, you know, I can trace its lineage historically, and so that's kind of where I come with that whole thing, um, you know. And it's funny too, because I think sometimes I'm so engrossed in history and like all the different terms that like, I don't even notice those debates <laughs> going on. And so like, I'll say, you know, the term assault rifle and that means, you know, a single soldier portable select fire, you know, detachable magazine, intermediate cartridge, like I'll start defining all those things. And then all of a sudden people will get really mad at me on social media and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> What did I miss? You know, sometimes I feel like I miss the like current cultural like connotations with that. Um, you know, because I just right. didn't even, like I broke the internet on recoil like years ago because I did a, a play on words. Um, I had a Sturmgewehr and I had the Burton like machine rifle, which was developed in the 19 teens, uh, 1718, and it technically falls under the definition of an assault rifle. Um, never put into production. And um, so we were just joking. I was like, well, today I'm gonna talk about one of the first. And I like skip over the Sturmgewehr and I pick up the Burton. And it was just a shtick. Like I didn't mean anything by it. And like one of the recoil editors like shared my, my, my thing and was like, today I learned people don't know the difference between assault weapon and assault rifle um, in the gun world. And like people were just like going nuts. And it was kind of funny because people were thinking I met, I was saying assault weapon when I was not. Um, and so then like people were defending me and defining assault rifle. And then some people were like, ah, it was just like, and I had no idea. Like I was just working my day. And then I look and there's like 200 comments and I'm like, what have I done? I just thought I was being funny. I guess not. You can, nowadays you can break the internet by uh, tri uh, finger placement right? If you have good uh, finger discipline, trigger discipline. So, you know, people, and I love that there's that passion. I'm, yeah. I'm excited that people care enough, everybody but at some, point, yes, at some point, it's like, okay, take a breath and yeah. go back it's like to what the I point of what media. you were making. Yeah. It's like what I said on social media last week is like the, the debate is awesome. You know, the passion is awesome, but we just kind of have to stop eating our own. Yes. Oh, yeah. amen to that. Right. Well, so our I my have next, a shark back here. For the yes. Because <laughs> you're like, I, I win. I'm the shark. So, <laughs> um, so that all this kind of leads me into the next question. So you can't, you know, divorce the, the topic of firearms in, in the United States from the second amendment, which of course is in our bill of rights. And so our bill of rights is a holy a political, non-political document. But in our current times, any mention of the Second Amendment causes people to run to their political corners. As we were just saying, you know, everybody's got a, a passionate uh, opinion. So how does an academic, an academic, you just are trying to talk about the history of things. Uh, how do you do the work you do concerning firearms and stay out of that mire? Yeah, um, so if I were putting my, like, ivory hat on um, as an academic, you know, I would actually say and, and challenge the, you know, assertion that the Bill of Rights is apolitical just because it's written by people in a time in history. 
you know, so there's always politics that plays into all of that stuff. But you're right, in today's society, this kind of debate has just is so, you know, engorged. And, and I, and one of the things that I always say is I, I used to do a lecture series called displaying the politically incorrect, not because I thought firearms were politically incorrect, but like, mainstream society, you know, often brings that connotation to it. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm now currently doing, because I'm working so much with FPC, and I'm just starting to do some work with George Moxery, who's a, a law professor at the University of Wyoming, very, very well published, um, is I'm actually trying to really start to understand the nuance in the Second Amendment debate. That's not something as a material culture person I've ever really uh, looked into, you know, it's one of those things that exists in our world and as a part of our history and is incredibly important but the actual like i went to a, a symposium years ago it was a liberal think tank called the aspen institute and um, it was a great oh my gosh <laughs> it was a great symposium and from that is where it was inspired my my symposium series that danny and i do and um you know and it was on firearms and common law and that was both the, yeah, the U.S. Constitution, but it was also the English Bill of Rights, because there's this argument that there is wording within the English Bill of Rights that uh, allows for firearms. And there's a debate whether that wording actually means that or not. But there's been some Canadian gun rights groups that have tried to play into that um, wording because they are still a part of, you know, the crown. And... Um, and so I'm sitting there and I am watching these people on both sides of the Second Amendment debate, you know, on both sides of this English Bill of Rights debate. And I, I remember I texted my old boss at the Smithsonian who was in the room and I'm like, do you know what's happening right now? And he's like, nah, no, I have no idea. I mean, it's such a fierce debate and people build their academic careers on fighting about commas and, and certain, you know, and one word meanings. And, and one of the things you learn in history as when you're learning to be a historian is that, you know, words always mean something different. You know, mm -hmm. back then with the mindset that they were in, the culture of their time, you know, it means something. And that's where you get some of the fiery debate that you get today where you'll say, uh, well, you know, the founders meant everything and therefore, you know, machine guns, all that concept. And then people will be like, no, they couldn't have conceived of that. And that's where that debate starts to spiral because there is an awareness that a historical document is, you know, an, a piece of its time, you know, a product of its time. And so, um, and that's why you get all the courts and the stuff, you know, that, that fight it all. But that's kind of that, that mentality in the two sides somehow filters down, you know, to everybody else. And it's, you know, it's continued to be debated. And so I'm currently reading as much um, Second Amendment scholarship as I can, both from people like uh, David Koppel, George Moxery, but I'm also looking at people that put out scholarship from the Duke Firearms Law Center. Um, you know, so you get, I'm trying to get both perspectives to see where everyone's coming from on that very, very nuanced debate. We'll see, we'll see, you know, what type of Second Amendment scholar I truly become when I'm done, but it is interesting. And so the way that, you know, I try to deal with the, the debate and, you know, where people are coming from um, is that I look at, you know, take a topic today. Uh, I guess I'll do one of my favorite topics. It's an article coming out of Recoil is feminism, okay? You know, and 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 you you're familiar with this with the DC project. What I said at our at our rally last year. So feminism today is uh, you know it's always different, but the, you know a lot of times today modern day feminists would you know they really don't like the idea of women carrying firearms. They think it puts them at more risk. You know they throw out the stats and all that stuff, and so they scoff at the idea of women carrying guns. On the other side you know, female gun owners, you know, see firearms as the ultimate, you know, example of being able to defend and protect themselves. And so when you, when I hear those two sides, um, you know, uh, you know, I look at, okay, well, where did that, where's that coming from? So my job is not necessarily to publicly make a declaration one way or the other on that debate. It's to listen to the debate. I have my own personal opinions. I carry a gun, so that's probably, you know, hint at that, um, right. but, you know, I, Spoiler I alert. Those guys, <laughs> and, um, you know, and I try to figure out the kind of point where that all comes together and where a lot of that comes together. Um, you know, one of the first points in, in, you know, if you're going backwards in history is the second wave of feminism in the sixties and seventies, where you have, you know, the, this is the sexual revolution. And the, one of the biggest topics of that era was how do you protect yourself from rape? How do you topple the patriarchy? You know, how, you know, how do we get, you know, 
equal rights. And so um, there is a there is a there's a fracture in that feminist movement. And there are the feminists that want to work within the structure, um, you know, of the government. And then there are these armed feminists that are, you know, I, I in the article I say, you know, at the same time when gun manufacturers are, you know, taking pictures of women without their clothes off or with their clothes off with guns and women are taking their clothes off for guns. There are women, you know, seeking to ignite the sexual revolution with them. And so like, you've got this fracturing there um, and there are these armed, they're leftist feminists and, you know, they're creating underground pamphlets and they're really, it's really good information. Like it's great. I mean, definitely look at this article when it comes out because we've got, you know, pictures um, of the pamphlets that I own and they're really trying to teach people about responsible gun ownership. And so these feminists have pictures and diagrams of firearms in the parts and they have, you know, firearm safety. And then they go to the point of like saying, and these are like a bunch of firearms that are available and these are the pros and cons of them and this is how much they cost. And then they even go to the point of, okay, so now you're carrying a gun and what do you, you know, what are the laws? Because they too are very frustrated with, you know, I don't want to defend myself and then go to jail. And one of the big people they always put up is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but Inez Garcia, who was raped. Um, and she went um, to her rapist and killed them. Um, and shot them. She went to jail and then um, a, a feminist attorney, you know, got her an appeal and, you know, was saying that, that the mindset that she was in, you know, it, it was able to prove that, you know, she was still, you know, in that mindset of being raped and, and, and in fear. And so they talk about her in some of those pamphlets because they saw firearms as, and they use the term, the great equalizer. Um, and so do a lot of um, armed female African-American civil rights activists as well. And so it's interesting to me. So basically I go back in history and I try to find that moment of connection between the really opposing for the seemingly opposing forces and, you know, try to say, hey guys, like, let's look at this and where did this change and how can we understand each other better at this moment in history and understand and respect that, you know, our four sisters, you know, maybe thought similar. And so I do that with pretty much everything I can in the modern gun debate is I find those key points in history where we start talking about them differently, we start acting differently, um, you know, and we start disagreeing. Um, because I think that there's a lot of points of unity that um, a lot of people who are disagreeing today don't realize that they have in common. And if we could start to understand that there's things that we have in common with people, maybe something can change and be better. Yeah. Maybe I'm naive, but whatever. I'm retired. I can do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, I thought you had a question, nope. Dan. Um, you that, guys are doing a great job. I could just stand here and learn. You could just cheer us on. I love it. <laughs> Um, so finding those key points where things converge, that is so important, you know, just like taking the etymology of a word and it's like, okay, so all of a sudden it, it shifted somehow culturally, or it shifted mm -hmm. somehow in, in a legal document or something. Those, that is really where the meat is and kind of leads us into the next uh, question, because as a historian, you are likely watching this particular time in world history with a different lens than the average person. Uh, how do you foresee this bizarre world of 2020 as we're sitting in our studio on Monday, July 13th of 2020 with the pandemic, we've had demonstrations that turned into riots. How do you see all this being integrated into the work that museums do in capturing history without commenting on history. Yeah, so this is actually a really interesting conversation right now. Um, and the museum field is really trying to figure out what their role is. You know, uh, a large portion of the museum field um, is kind of moving towards the fact that, you know, it's a hashtag. Museums are not neutral. Um, and I, I wrote an article in an academic um, forum that says, I, you know, I want museums to be as neutral as possible. I don't think that it is necessarily our job to make that kind of commentary. Um, but, you know, so I, I, you know, I differ. Um, Danny makes a joke that says, you know, everyone wants, you know, museums to not be neutral until a firearms museum posts hashtag repeal the NFA and then all of a sudden <laughs> we shouldn't be neutral again. 
Um, but I believe very strongly that, you know, I mean, neutrality is impossible completely, obviously. But um, I, I believe very strongly when you have hot button issues like firearms, um, you know, being as neutral as possible allows an opportunity for people to learn from all perspectives and then have conversation. And so maybe there are some areas where you don't want, you know, you do want non-neutrality to kind of, you know, talk about a certain thing. But I think when something is already so, you know, up for debate and, and, and so emotional in people's minds that it's almost like they go to a museum and they're like, ah, you know, I, just, I don't want, you know, to be bombarded by all of that. And so one of the common, the, the things that we've been trying to really kind of understand in the museum world is um, what is our role as curator? You know, are we, you know, the people that put out the information or do we allow, you know, other cultures to also provide feedback? So for example, here at the center, we have a Plains Indian Museum. Well, we also have a Western Art Museum. And, you know, one of the topics that's been discussed is, okay, so a lot of times depictions of Western art can be mm, a little offensive, uh, if, if I'm being <laughs> polite, um, uh, you know, especially of Native peoples, you know. And so we've talked about, like, we have a bunch of last stand types of imagery, you know. And would it be interesting, worthwhile, um, to have your traditional museum label, you know, about that work of art, what it is, and then bring somebody in from the historical field that's Native, um, you know, to also write a label about, you know, their um, perspective on the same painting to kind of show people that they are, you can look at the same thing and see a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And so there's been kind of that conversation of providing, opening up, you know, the door for new voices. You know, one thing that we kind of see, especially with what's going on um, with a lot of the protests and the riots is, you know, these are things that we've seen throughout history, you know, happen. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting because I also then see those histories get appropriated by various sides for rhetoric, which is always fascinating to me. But, you know, we, I, I think about the uh, mob rule in New Orleans um, and during the post-Civil War period, which was white rioting. And then you think about, um, you think about, you know, the bombing of Black Wall Street, which came up in a lot of, you know, those conversations um, and, and have been politicized since. But you, you, I try to find those moments in history where there are those, like I said, with the, the feminist part is I try to find those points in history where there is similarity to try to make sense of, you know, where we are today. I tend to reserve my, you know, public opinions of things that are going on today to kind of see how everything plays out, you know, because it's more of a looking back um, to make sure, because you don't have all the information when you're in it and you're especially, you know, attached to it and emotional with it. So we try to find, you know, where, you know, where is this, you know, anger and where is, you know, this kind of problem, you know, stemming from? Um, and where in history, you know, can we look to that to see if there are similarities, if there's things that we can learn from that, you know, all of those different things. And so we try to do that as much as possible. And then um, with the pandemic, I haven't had time to do this, but Danny and I did a video about, um, we did a podcast on like, um, you know, end of times, major world, like wars, uh, you know, when people do start to accumulate firearms, you know, out of, you know, fear and necessity, you know, all of those things. And so I want to know, and I hadn't looked into this, so if anybody knows, like, did a lot of people buy guns during the, like, flu, the Spanish flu, you know? Mm. Um, like, I want to know, so like, you know, we do a lot with um, the history of firearms and legislation in this country, which um, as a result, we tend to know a lot about, you know, a lot of the kind of race politics that goes on because a lot of uh, early gun legislation was, you know, a part of race politics, you know, to keep firearms out of the hands of, you know, African-Americans, Native peoples, rural, um, poor whites, um, you know, and so we get into that, we, you know, we haven't really looked too much into pandemics um, and the relationship with firearms and that. So I'd really be interested to know kind of if this is a kind of thing that happens. Um, you know, you see it with world wars, you see governments doing it, especially when the war starts, you know, the kind of amassing and, and, and you know, amping up of production, obviously out of necessity. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I don't know too much about that one. So I can't, you know, predict anything, but, you know, there are key moments in history that can lead you to try to understand where people are coming from and how people are feeling about something that is so, so emotional for everyone involved. Um, so it's been kind of interesting. And as a side anecdote, we... We've been experiencing um, this summer a little bit of something that we didn't anticipate. Um, and it's one of those culture of the time types of things. So you know that we've got the Time Magazine mural. 
mm-hmm. yes. in our museum. And the, if you're not familiar with that, it was uh, made years ago. Um, and it is a mural that depicts 250 people equally across the gun debate. And our own DC project leader, Di, you know, Di Lidorf Muller, and she's the one that actually got it out here because she was the pro-gun spokesperson for it. And I remember doing research on it when we were putting the mural in because, you know, yes, there are a lot of people in there that, you know, show politics and that kind of thing. And, but, you know, when I was looking at it, you know, it was one of those things that I saw across the board pro-gun people and, you know, pro-gun control people alike were very happy with the way that they were represented. And that doesn't happen very often, especially for the pro-gun community. And I was so proud of that. So we put the mural up and, you know, obviously you're going to get some people that look at it super fast and be like, wow, you know. Why (laughs) is that person on there? I don't like this, you know, it's anti-gun. And it's like, no, it's actually an equal representation when you stop and look at it. Wow. The thing that we're getting this summer is the fact that there are two groups of BLM people in that uh, in that mural. And what I found most fascinating before all you know all of the recent things was the fact that there's two groups of Black Lives Matter people on there, uh, both holding sign or no one's I think got a shirt that says Black Lives Matter, one's holding a sign. And I don't know, I haven't listened to all of the you know stories, but from a visual perspective, the one group is not holding firearms and the other group is holding firearms. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, But because of everything going on right now, people are looking at the sign and thinking it's a Black Lives Matter mural. Mm. Rather angrily (laughs) approaching Danny um, about, you know, our, you know, posting, you know, putting up something like that, which we put up years ago Mm -hmm. and it equally shows people. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it does kind of start, you know, bringing up the conversation of, you know, it, how quickly culture shifts, you know, and people's attitudes shift and change. But at the same time, it's an amazing mural to spark debate. And that was one of the things that we wanted. Uh, We didn't anticipate, you know, the debate (laughs) that's being, you know, discussed right now with it, but it shows you how, difficult it can be for museums to try to, you know, ignite a conversation. And then, you know, the the culture changes so rapidly that then all of a sudden it's a different conversation and is it the conversation, you know, you want to facilitate in your museum or not. And so that's been something we've been kind of like, you know, looking at. And every conversation that we've had with people has been really good when you actually kind of dissect it for them and understand it. But it's interesting to see the gut reaction um, from our visitors. And we get visitors from all around the world. So it's all kinds of reactions. Um, You know, so it's, that's been really, really interesting. Well, then I would say that is, from my perspective, that's one of your most successful uh, displays because yeah. that's what you want. You want to cause people to think, you want to cause people to, to discuss and maybe I always say, like, if you're listening to this show and there's something you disagree with, that's amazing because yeah. now you're, you're thinking about it and you're probably going to go to the Google machine and spend some time researching to prove me wrong. Good. Yeah. Amazing. Go yeah. <laughs> that's what we want in the world, right? Well, I'm going to turn your mic off for a second. Oh, no. <laughs> turn your mic off. Okay. Ashley, so you've been a uh, television host and a producer. Uh, what, do you have any new plans for anything coming up? Uh, so yes and no. I'm working on a show right now that I can't really say much about. It's um, I'm not on us. it. Tell well, us. Oh yeah, with the little recording symbol. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thing. yeah. I like the... my uh, I like my NDAs where they are. Uh, <laughs> um, so I am producing a show right now. Um, it's not. Um, I'm not um, the host or anything, which is actually very exciting for me. Um, and it's actually not a firearm show. That's all I'll say. Okay. Um, and so I'm working on that, but uh, I had about, and then gun stories, obviously, I'm always, you know, doing stuff with gun stories, but um, the, the COVID-19 has caused quite the kind of halt on, you know, the filming process. I'm not sure if you guys saw, I was on Rob Riggle's show um, last season, so I'm hoping they get another season because I'll be on it again. Um, I had a bunch of stuff in the works, and then COVID kind of went, um, but I mean, it looks like it's firing back up because even like two days ago, I had a DM about um, uh, something moving forward. And so I, in terms of hosting right now, uh, not nothing super in the works, had some stuff before. And so hopefully it'll surface back up. But honestly, the nature of TV is so interesting to me because it's literally like, just when you think you're out, you get a DM on your social media and it draws you back <laughs> in. <laughs> uh, but I actually, I, 
um, when I was a kid, I was an, I was, a, I, I acted a lot, you know, I did a lot of professional theater. Um, and I never like thought in the million years that I would get back to this world because it made, it made my tummy hurt like a lot. And like, it still does. And I really like the other day, Mark, um, my husband, Mark was like, Oh, here's gun stories. And like, I was like, looked at, I like gave him like the death stare and I was like no we are relaxing right now and I do not want to see myself on camera okay <laughs> you know and he's like all right I'll watch it when you're not here so I still get really nervous about you know being on camera and stuff but I loved um, one thing I started getting into towards the end of my like teenage acting career was the fact that I started directing and I started um, doing a lot of like behind the scenes work. And so um, I was one of the consulting producers on Brothers in Arms, which was on History Channel. Um, and it was a very minimal role. I um, just basically threw them, threw them information and they could do what they will with it. Well, this one is actually, this show is the same group of people that did Master of Arms. And so I've had a really you know instrumental role with content. And so it's just so much fun to like create content and then see it come out of somebody else's mouth, it's, I think it's cool. And so I'm excited to be doing more behind the camera and, and maybe getting some more historically accurate information out there. A girl can That's dream. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so I'm working on it. And um, oh, I forgot to mention when you asked about Fairness Policy Coalition, but I am gonna be doing a video series for them. Um, so that'll be in front of the camera just online. Um, that's basically what we've been talking about, taking something that's contemporary in our, you know, current debate and dissecting the historical origins of that topic to help people have a little bit more information when they, you know, go to debate it with their friends or enemies or if they're taking it to a court, you know, of law. I'm going to try to dissect a lot of where a lot of what we're talking about comes from. I absolutely love that. And, you know, when you said you were younger and you uh, did some acting, I also happen to know that you did some ballroom dancing. Oh, yes. Are you still I, doing that? Uh, um, <laughs> yes, I am. That is one of my <laughs> plans. Uh, I have a dance instructor in Arizona and um, I've been taking lessons on and off. Um, I'm very in shape. Uh, on and off. Oh, yeah. I mean. I, <laughs> do they still have ballrooms? No. Yeah, I've seen pictures of you. You are so not out of shape. Now, if you're talking just muscular and, and muscular, the stamina like, that it takes. My chiropractor the other day had to do something with my leg, and I was like, oh, no, I've got to start stretching again. Uh, but no, so I actually do want to go back to ballroom. Um, I don't know how seriously and how in-depth I'll get um, going back. It all just depends. Um, but, you know, I hurt my – I stepped in a hole, like, in October, and I jacked my ankle up pretty bad. And then COVID-19 happened. And so, you know, no one was doing anything. So I'm hoping now that I moved to Arizona that I can do some ballroom dancing and maybe go back to competing. I don't know. I don't know. It's, I always say, like, I don't want to get back in the drama of all the, you know, competitions. But at the same time, I can't just do anything halfway. No. So I will probably be competing again within the next year or so. And I mean, uh, to have something that's so completely different from the rest of your work, I think is so good for your brain. You know, it gives your, your brain a completely different mode to, to run in for a while. Yeah, I display machine guns, and then I also ballroom dance. Yeah. Sort of like. <laughs> you, well, you don't ballroom dance. I would love no. it if he would. But what were you going to say, Ashley? Oh, yeah. It is really funny because um, a lot of people, um, you know, guns are their passion, their hobby. And, like, obviously, I'm very passionate about firearms history and, and firearms. You know, everyone always goes, when are you going to get into competitive shooting? And my answer is, like, never. Yeah. That's what my husband does. You know, that's his yeah. thing. And Mark Hainish, by the way. Uh, yes. And I would not insult competitive shooters by like coming into the sport because I'm pretty <laughs> sure I would be terrible. But sometimes, but part of the nature of, you know, the shooting sports sometimes is that like, I'm a girl and I don't look too terrible. So I feel like I would get sponsored. And then yeah, I would yeah. be like, and that would just be like insulting the entire sport because I do not deserve <laughs> that in any way, shape, or form. So like for I me, it. I actually, like a lot of people, they go to a firearms museum for their fun. And for me, it's ballroom dancing. And um, I'm really obsessed with like um, dark tourism, why people go to sites of mourning, uh, battlefields, uh, really creepy macabre places. I'm like, I used to be a ghost hunter. So like, I'm super into like weird, creepy stories. And so my like, <laughs> like, so you guys, while you guys are visiting, you know, the gun museum, I'm off at like Zach Baggins' haunted museum looking at weird stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of funny, like as much as I love firearms and they're like very 
much a part of my life. You know, my hobbies are totally different. Whereas people that maybe don't work in the gun field, you know, their hobbies, firearms and their passion about that. And they want to go to every single thing they possibly can, firearms and museums and history related. And for me, you know, as much as I love it, it's still work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Still yeah for sure. So Ashley, after the show's over, Cheryl's going to ask you how to get me involved in ballroom dancing, but I'm going to ask you on the air, how do I get her involved <laughs> in going to these uh, haunted mansions and stuff like that? She won't do it. I'm a ninny. I love it. She won't. Oh, okay. So Scary. here's the reality of Cheryl. So um, I love a good ghost story, like more than anybody. Okay. I stay, my husband and I stay at every haunted uh, place ah. we possibly can. <laughs> And nothing has ever happened. I was a ghost. I was like a part of this ghost hunting thing in Fort Delaware for like three years. Nothing ever happened. But it's still cool to run around a fort at night. So the reality of the matter is, one, it's good to go with somebody else. It's yeah. also good to be have a skeptic in the room because they can lighten the situation. And yeah. three, like the likelihood, I'm sorry for all you lovers of ghosts and have ghosts, actual firsthand ghost accounts or stories. Apparently ghosts don't like me because they don't come out for me. Um, the likelihood something's actually going to happen is slim to none. <laughs> so right. there you go. Um, watch, watch, watch now you're going to go to Jerome or something and something's going to happen and you're going to be like, Ashley. <laughs> exactly. I was like, you know how a cat can sense who is allergic to cats? And that cat spends all of its time, you know, on that person. That's what ghosts would do to me. They'd be like, hey, I have tried one of those scaredy cats, you know, one of those yeah. scaredy people. We, Let's go. For, for, we've been going to Halloween horrors for, I don't know, maybe seven years now, and she won't go. No, and it's like, that's like Universal Studios. Come on, it's just, all just oh my gosh, fun, it's so much fun. I, you know what? I will actually defend Cheryl on this one because if you are, so like if you go to a haunted house, you know, okay. I'm going to be scared, you know, shitless, I'm allowed to swear. Uh, like okay. from start to finish, but when I leave, I'm fine. But yes. with the Universal and all the theme parks, there are people scaring you all the time. Yes. And so yes. there is no escape from that. So I would yes. start her with something that's like a, like a start to finish haunted house so that she knows, you know, here's my safe space before I go in. Here's my safe space when I leave. I also worked in haunted houses in high school. Um, you know, and I, 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 but like, if you go to those places, you're a hundred percent immersed. But the trick though, if you do get dragged to one is like, don't react. If you don't react, they leave you alone. They may get up in your face. And if you're just like, cause like, I look like the type of person that would react and I don't just because I worked in haunted houses. Um, you know, so they literally are like, and if you're, you're just no like, fun, Ashley, <laughs> this is how far I can get with Cheryl. No. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I love them, but they're not for everybody. I love a good scare. Like, I don't yes. even know. Maybe I'm, like, just sick. <laughs> my my, my brother-in-law and I are really nervous that they're not going to have it this year. But oh. we go to Knott's Berry Farm, Scary Farm and to Halloween Horrors, and we love it. It's, it's, we wait all year for that. It's yeah. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. I love them. Love well, we've we've got to wrap. We got to go. Let you get back to wearing all the gajillion hats that you wear. And uh, on that topic, could you just tell folks how do they follow all of the things what that do you, mean? you do? How do you follow Ashley? All you do is turn the corner. There she is. Boom. There she is again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing standing on a street corner, Dan. But... <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> I, I didn't say street. Really bad characterization, Dan. <laughs> Um, but yeah, okay, so if you want to know what's going on with the Cody Firearms Museum, I'm actually running the social media, so uh, we're Cody Firearms on Twitter, and then we're Cody Firearms Museum on Facebook and Instagram. Danny is still running the Reddit page because I'm scared. Um, tell but we tell us Danny's last name. Danny Michael. Danny Michael. Um, he does uh, chat up on all the gun subreddits, and it's always fun. And then if you're interested in what's going on with me, um, I am, I know I have to remember, I'm at Gun Curator on Instagram, um, at official the Ashley Lebinsky on Facebook, and then I'm just Ashley Lebinsky on Twitter, but like, don't follow my Twitter because I hate Twitter and I don't post. <laughs> I love it. Well, and we even named this episode The Gun Code, which is one of your websites, and yeah. never even got to that. So people are going to have to tune in next time we have you on to learn more about yeah, that. I have but to update that website. It's old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know in your spare time yeah in your spare time you can work on that because you have none yeah so, 
All right, lady, you are amazing. Thank you so much for all you do. We so appreciate you taking so much time to be with us today. And uh, we will be following you, just not on Twitter. We're going to take your advice on Twitter. Nobody needs to go to that dumpster fire. She's probably standing in her front door right now. (laughs) Dumpster fire is a great classification of Twitter. I hate Twitter. (laughs) For sure. All right. Thanks again so much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. She's got a lot of fire. I'm, I'm telling you, seriously, everywhere you go, there's Ashley. It's true. She is such a go-getter, such a, a busy person, and her work is so purposeful. Right. And I love that. It inspires me to, um, you know, just to, to do more, to be more effective. Um, it, I love it. I'm going to um, talk to her about maybe uh, making the Cody Museum a haunted museum on mm-hmm. Halloween. That would be so awesome. It would be scary, wouldn't it? It would. Surely they've thought of that because, I mean, if she loves ghosty things and she's the curator, but uh, you should definitely drop that idea in her her ear the next time. You know, that museum, I hadn't been to it until about three years ago is the first time we went. Mm -hmm. Um, We were invited. For the symposium. Yes. And I'll tell you, I have never seen a more beautiful museum. Really well done. And then with the update, um, we have we been there since yet? Yes. We did yes, go for did. the update. Yep. That's right. That's right. Because then we get we did get to see the Time magazine yep. uh, display. And oh you man, know, it's and just incredible because there is they do pull culture, modern culture. It's not just like some old mothbally, dusty old. No, place. it's it's super amazing. All I think there's three museums in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, for all you guys that's never been to the museum and want to go, just keep in mind, when they take something out of the museum, it's not in the trash can I looked. (laughs) So you can't. True story. Okay, we got to get out of here. Where are we going? Uh, We've got actually, um, because it's Monday and we do our interviews on Mondays, you guys are probably catching on to that by now. We have another interview waiting in the wings. So maybe we should do some thanking. Next time. Maybe we should do some thanking and stuff. We should. We should thank our awesome listeners. You guys are really where the rubber meets the road. Thank you for spending your time with us. It How about our guests? Everything. Thank you to our amazing guest, Ashley Levinsky, who wears a gajillion hats. Um, but definitely uh, the one that she wears, the ones that she wears in the Cody Firearms Museum world are um, really groundbreaking, honestly, yes. for um, a, a young female person i just truly truly awesome i think history is going to um look very well on the work that she has been able to accomplish right i would say you know i've never been to the museum before her Mm -hmm. but when you walk in the door there's you can describe it as energy the whole museum is just full of packed full of energy i love that all right well until next time Pray for our nation. Do yes. it. Don't say you're going to do it. Do it. Just do it now. Do it right now. Just pray for our leaders. All of them. All of them. Yeah. Even the ones you don't like. Okay. Especially the ones you don't like. Be good to each other. Have a great week. And God bless. <laughs>